So we're starting a new series of sermons today from the book of Revelation. I don't know how that makes you feel when you hear that. Um, For some people, the book of Revelation, last book of the New Testament, last book of the Bible, it's just confusing, kind of bewildering, overwhelming in some of its details and imagery. We'll unpack some of that imagery as we walk through the book. You'll see some of it reflected in these little icons that we'll walk through uh, in a couple of weeks as we learn from later chapters of this book. For some people, this part of the Bible is not just confusing, it's frightening. One thing we need to know is um, that, that the common perception of this book is wrong, right? That it's all about judgment. It's about a God who's harsh and vindictive, vengeful. That's kind of the impression that many preachers have given when they've opened this part of the Bible and many artists have given as they've tried to turn it into imagery. It is true that, um, that uh, the theme of judgment runs throughout this book. There's a reason for that. Part of it is it's written to people who are experiencing intense persecution by very strong and evil opponents. And so the theme of justice and judgment is a big part of this book, as it's a part of the whole of the Bible. It's always set in the context of an invitation, an invitation to repent before the God of justice, an invitation to be restored in relationship to Him and to one another, restoration of the good world that He's made that's been scarred by our failures, weaknesses, departures from His purposes, an invitation to renewal, an invitation to become an overcomer, the title of this series, which we'll spend a few weeks in this fall, and then we'll pick it up again in the spring, is to the one who overcomes. You don't become an overcomer by being confused and bewildered and frightened. So if we use this book of the Bible in a way that confuses and frightens people, we are doing it wrong. It's my promise to you as we start this journey through this part of Scripture. You overcome through strength and courage and hope. And where do you get those? You get those through a joyful vision of the greatness of the God who has come into our world and will come again to put right everything that has gone wrong. That's the journey we start together today. We're going to hear today from the first few verses of Revelation chapter 1. Emily, will you read for us? Thank you. This morning's scripture lesson comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Take a moment and pray together. Lord God, be with us. Show yourself to us. Some of us have already kind of gone into Bible student mode. We've said, oh, good. Oh, goody. I, I get to learn more about a part of the Bible I'm not as familiar with. And it's good to be in that place. But in our excitement to learn more things, may we not miss you. Show yourself to us today. And the way we'll know that we have seen you is if we are changed. Because seeing you will transform us. Show yourself to us and change us, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Went on a hiking trip recently with several pastor friends, one of whom was turning 50. And uh, so uh, after we had all our fun conversations about whether aliens are visiting our solar system and baseball and uh, other fun topics, um, <clears throat> we came around to a more serious question pretty diverse group, a Korean-American pastor was with us, an Indian-American pastor, younger guys who were kind of like, hey, let's talk to the 50-year-old guys about whether they have any wisdom on what we expect to be the challenges facing the church over the next 10 years. And um, the four of us together talking late into the night, sitting around cups of hot chocolate, hot tea, and the coffee was gone by midnight. Um, we came back to a conclusion. None of us are cultural warriors, by the way. This group, we're, we're pretty, pretty chill guys. Um, but we see this tension increasing between Christian commitment and modern Western culture. And we agreed that over the next 10 years, the church is going to have to learn how to live faithfully in a new kind of environment. 
the Western church, that is. In some parts of the church, this lesson has been learned and known for centuries. But how is it that we learn to live in a new environment that says you can't be a good citizen of the modern world and confess that Jesus is Lord? How does the church learn to live in that kind of environment where what we're hearing day in, day out is these two things can't fit well together. You have to make a choice. Either be a good citizen of the modern world or confess Jesus as your Lord. You cannot do both at once. It's creating a bit of a crisis for the church in the Western world. We'll talk more today about that crisis. There's something we need in the middle of that crisis. We'll talk about that need. And then there's a vision that can help us prepare for the days ahead. Let's start with the crisis. Because the crisis I just described is, um, is an intense and real one. God has a sense of humor, right? And so reflecting on this sermon all week long, I read an article just yesterday. It came out by a, an author named Phil Zuckerman. And he writes about uh, ethics and morality. He wrote an article in salon.com and uh, had this to say. Uh, I, I won't quote the title of the article because it was really long. Um, but he said that according to his research, hardcore secularists, secular people, he's talking in his context about atheists, people who aren't, it, it isn't they just aren't passionate about religion, they're passionately committed to zero religion. Hardcore secularists, he says, exhibit much more empathy, compassion, and care for the well-being of others than the most ardently God-worshipping. And if you read his article and want him to define what he means by ardently God-worshipping people, he gave three criteria. Regular church attendance, you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So even though he uses a fairly generic phrase here, God-worshipping people, he's talking about Christians. And in, and in, in his uh, view, you, you find less empathy, compassion, and care for others among Christians than you do among atheists. And so he says, the conclusion to the whole article, that there's a pressing need in our time for a more consciously secular citizenry. That is, for good citizens who see this problem that the more religious you are, specifically the more committed you are as a Christian, the less likely you are to be kind and loving toward others. Therefore, we need good citizens who will make a conscious choice to stop believing in God, to stop trusting the Bible as His Word, to stop attending church, to stop believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Why? So that we can make life better, safer, and more humane. That's the end of the article. So if you, if you haven't heard that, you're going to be hearing it more and more and more. That is the crisis of the church in the Western world in our time. In the past, People believed that if you were a Christian, you were probably going to be a better citizen of the world as a result. 
And then in recent decades, you know, it kind of became, well, if, if you're a Christian, that makes you a little old-fashioned, but you're kind of harmless. You're out of touch, out of step, but you're not doing a whole lot of damage. But now, as this article just is one example showing, that shifted. And many of our neighbors believe that the more seriously you take your Christianity, the less likely it is that you're going to be a good citizen and a good neighbor. That's the crisis. What do I do when my society tells me I can't be a good citizen and confess Jesus as Lord? Why are we talking about that when we should be talking about the book of Revelation? (laughs) Well, the answer is that was exactly the crisis facing Christians in the Roman Empire at the end of the first century. The book of Revelation is written sometime around 80, 85, 90 A.D. First century is coming to an end. Christianity has been spreading throughout the Roman Empire, making its way westward, but spreading south into Africa, eastward into India and China, spreading north into Europe, westward toward Rome and eventually Spain. And that's the crisis that the church was facing in the first century. Verse 4, John writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. Asia was the name of a Roman administrative province. We use it today as the name of a whole continent. But in the Roman world, when you talk about Asia, you were talking about this area of what today would be western Turkey. It was one province, and there were about eight others in what is modern-day Turkey. And so there are seven churches. We'll meet them in the coming weeks. And they're listed here on this map with little red boxes, cities like Ephesus and Laodicea and Philadelphia, which was originally not in Pennsylvania, Um, Smyrna and Pergamum. We'll, We'll meet those churches. Why was John writing to these churches in this part of the Roman Empire? And the answer is the whole church was facing this crisis in which their society, their neighbors, their rulers said, the more serious you get about this Jesus person, the more skeptical we are about whether you're a good citizen of our city, our empire, our world. I can't trust you as my neighbor if you're worshiping Jesus. Why seven churches? There were more than seven churches in that part of the Roman Empire, and so every interpreter has agreed for every century. This number is symbolic. Welcome to the first symbol in the book of Revelation. We're going to talk a lot about symbols and how to make sense of them in the coming weeks. It's going to be so much fun. I can't wait. I'll calm myself. We'll, uh, We'll just deal with this one for now. The book of Genesis says that God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rests, and he says, it's good. It's good. It's very good. So seven became a number within Jewish circles to symbolize completeness and perfection and things being as they ought, things being sort of filled up. And so to talk about seven churches is a way of symbolizing this is a message for the whole church, the complete church, the full church, 
not only in this one Roman province, but in the whole empire. That is, all churches everywhere. This is a message for the whole church, even the church in 21st century North America. This is a problem for the whole church, this kind of crisis that says, um, you know, our neighbors are saying we should worship the Roman emperor as our number one God and, and take Jesus as our number two God. Um, and we're being told that we're not good patriots, that we're not good citizens of the empire or of our city if we won't do that. In order to get a job in my city, I have to go participate in sacrifices to the, the patron god or goddess of my trade. You'll remember that scene in the book of Acts where people who make things out of silver, if you, if you made things out of silver in the city of Ephesus in the first century, one of these seven cities, then you had to make sacrifices to the goddess Artemis. She was the patron deity of people whose job it was to make stuff out of silver. Everybody's job had a patron god or goddess. And so you become a Christian and suddenly it gets harder to have a job, harder to make a living, or to go on making a living doing that job you've always done and that probably your father and grandfather did before you. You feel like you can't be very open about trusting Jesus. That's the crisis we're talking about. What are the options in that kind of crisis? Well, one option is just avoid the conflict. I can reject Jesus and be done with him, just walk away from him, and I won't have to, I won't have to worry about this anymore. Or I can reject society. Have Jesus go to the desert. Just don't spend time around people. I, I can avoid this conflict. Somehow I think that a God who says, here are two things I want you to do. Love me with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself doesn't want me to reject society. He doesn't want me to reject him, but he also doesn't want me to reject my neighbor. He wants me to love my neighbor. So what are our next options? If we can't avoid the conflict by rejecting Jesus or rejecting society, we could minimize the conflict, find a path of compromise. Can I just not take my Jesus so seriously? Let him be number two as long as Rome is number one. Can I let my citizenship in this world matter most when I'm around people who want that to matter most? And then when I'm around other Christians, I can say my citizenship in Jesus' world matters most. And can I find a way to compromise? Or do I follow Jesus into loving God with my whole heart? my whole soul, my whole mind with all my strength and love my neighbor as myself. And when I follow him into that, I know I will risk rejection. I know I will risk ridicule. I know I will risk having people write articles that say I can't be a good neighbor and I'm not to be trusted because I'm not secular enough. I will risk financial loss if I live in the Roman Empire or if I live in parts of India today, parts of Africa today, parts of the Middle East today, 
I may very well risk execution. Because I'm living in this world of crisis. Can't be a good citizen and confess Jesus as my Lord according to my society. What do I do? What do we need in that kind of crisis? We need strength and courage and hope. People who are weak are not ready for that crisis. People who are afraid are going to choose the path of compromise every time because it's very inviting and it's very easy. (laughs) And people who have no hope that there is strength and courage available to us from outside of us are not ready for that crisis. We need strength and courage and hope, but of a particular kind, the book of Revelation says, it's the kind that's grounded in a clear vision of our God and everything that he is for us in Jesus Christ. That's why these opening verses, these opening verses of a book that's so full of strange symbols and visions and uh, details that may be hard to make sense of, so much of what these opening verses say is not hard to make sense of at all. Because what they're saying is God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son is infinitely worthy of worship and praise. Look at how verse 4 hammers that home. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the first element of this vision of our God is that he's eternal. There was never a time that he didn't exist. He is not afraid of the future. It's not going to take him by surprise. He was with us in the past. He'll be with us in the present. He'll be with us in the future. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, this God rules over everything. He's a king. He's enthroned. He has a sevenfold spirit. Ooh, seven spirits. Are there, how many holy spirits are there? Let's go back to our symbolism. If you're talking about the Holy Spirit and you call him a seven spirits, what are you saying? He's all the Holy Spirit you need. He is the Spirit who, his work is complete. His work is perfect. He is able to give all the life that we need. There's the Father. There's the Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, I want you to have a vision of who Christ is. Before we get started with any messages to any of those seven churches in Asia Minor, before we get started with any visions and symbols, we want to get started with this. Jesus Christ is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on the earth. What's he like? He loves us. And he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Do you see what this book is doing? Before it does anything else, it's giving us a vision of the one who loves us. Because when we have that vision, so many other good things are going to flow from it. That's where we'll find strength and courage. That's where we'll find a kind of love for God and neighbor that won't walk the path of compromise, but it also won't walk the path of Hatred and rejection of society. <laughs> we'll find all of that here in this place. Verse 8 goes on to talk about this same thing, right? 
God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Well, those are two letters from the Greek alphabet, and having been a Greek teacher once, I have to take every opportunity I can get to show you a little Greek, right? So this is not the world's best picture, a little wonky, a little crooked, a little fuzzy, but I took this in a church in Jerusalem called the Church of All Nations. It is near the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And this is a mosaic on the floor, and it's an ancient Christian symbol. Uh, you'll see here what looks like the English letter X. It's a Greek chi or T if you want to be technical about it. And there's the Greek letter Rho, the first two letters of the name Christ. And oftentimes in Christian symbolism, you see that Cairo anagram with an alpha and an omega on either side of it. I am the first and the last, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And um, this is a figure of speech called a merism, where you take uh, one end of something and the other end of something, and you use that to symbolize everything in between. God is saying, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end, and I'm everything in between. I'm all you need. I will be there for you. I've always been there. I will always be there. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One, the One who holds all power and all might. And we're intended to grasp this vision of our God and, and to just be overwhelmed with His awe and His majesty. And our number one goal in reading the book of Revelation and learning from it and being changed by it is to get that vision. It's not to answer every question about every symbol and every detail. Because if we do all that and we lose this vision of this God, we got it wrong. It's certainly not to frighten people. <laughs> Because if you have this vision of this God, you aren't filled with fear. You're filled with awe and reverence and love for him that overflows in love for neighbor. That's our need. Let's talk about that vision for a moment. Let's talk about a vision of Christ. First of all, a vision of of Jesus as a Savior who speaks. He's not distant or silent or absent from our world or absent from our lives. He didn't look down from heaven and say, you know what, I went through my suffering, but now I rose from the dead. I am enthroned in heaven with the Lord, and I really don't care about those seven churches in Asia and what kind of crisis is facing them. I have nothing to say to them. Let them figure it out for themselves. He's not that kind of Savior. What does he do? He speaks. The Father gives him a revelation, an uncovering, an unveiling of things that we couldn't have known without him. The Father gives that to him, and then Jesus gives it to us. That's what the text says. Let's listen to it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. That's us. If we confess Jesus as Lord, then we are servants. <laughs> Jesus got this revelation from the Father 
And then he gave it to us. How did he do it? He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then you get this wonderful reminder of how worship happened in the ancient world. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. So reading in the ancient world wasn't done privately, quietly in your room and in your head. It was done out loud and often in public. And just as we have done here this morning, the first Christians gathered in Asia to hear these words read. And one person stood and read, as Emily did for us. And others sat and heard. And Jesus steps into that very real world of speaking and hearing and of molecules in the air that vibrate so that all those little tiny bones and hairs in your ear work the way they're intended to. Jesus is with us in that world. He is not a distant or absent Savior. And He is coming. Listen to verse 4. It talks about God as the one who was and who is, uh, who is and who was and who is to come. It repeats it in verse 8. The one who is and who was and who is to come. A better way to translate that in both cases is that he is already coming. In other words, it's not an abstract statement about time. He'll be there in the future. He is to come. It's a description of something that's happening now. He is the coming one. He is coming. We get that same message um, in verse 7. Behold, He, Jesus, is coming with the clouds. Jesus is coming. When is He coming? He's coming soon, verse 1 says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And this is where we have to stop and say, oftentimes this book has been used for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways in the life of God's people. Oftentimes, Christian leaders have said, Jesus is coming soon, therefore you should be very afraid. People who are already afraid don't need someone to make them more afraid. If you're already afraid that your head might be cut off by a Roman sword because you believe in Jesus, it's not going to help you become an overcomer of that fear. If someone tells you, Jesus is coming, therefore be very afraid. So let's make sense of this. Jesus is coming. The text says, soon. How do we make sense of that? All right, number one interpretive principle of Revelation is it's not here to make you afraid. It's here to give you a vision of God. Number two, interpretive principle of Revelation, full of symbols. We've got to deal with that. Can't do more of that today. Number three, interpretive principle, book of Revelation. You see what I'm doing? That's a teaser. You're meant to come back next week, Okay. <laughs> You have to know the Old Testament to make any sense of this book. 
So, man, we're going to spend a lot of time in the New Testament this year. Ten weeks in the fall in Revelation, 12 weeks in the spring in Revelation. That's heavy load on the, on the New Testament. If we do it right, it's a heavy load on the Old Testament too. So, here we go. Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. Daniel sees a vision in a dream. And, and, and he's, well, King Nebuchadnezzar has seen this vision. Daniel has prayed for the ability to interpret it. And he says to the king, O king, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Not identically the same word uh, as, as John uses, revelation, but uh, really close. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. When that Hebrew verse Aramaic, technically, got translated into Greek a couple centuries before the coming of Jesus. That phrase, what will be, got translated in a particular way, and that's exactly, exactly those words in exactly that order, or what we read here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, of the things that must soon take place. But where Daniel talks about things that would happen in the latter days, John talks about things that will happen soon. What's, what's the difference? The difference is Jesus has now died and risen again. And so the days that Daniel saw as future, the last days, they're already here. We are living in the last days. That's a perspective of the whole New Testament. That the last days aren't this small window of time that happens right before Jesus comes back. And, and if we can just predict it with enough clarity, then we'll know, hey, we're, we're okay for a few years or decades. But then we've got to get real serious about our faith because Jesus is coming back and then we've got to be real afraid. No. The last days, according to the Bible, are when two things happen. God comes in judgment against sin, and God comes to pour out blessing and grace on his people. And at the cross, God came and he poured out judgment against sin. And that judgment fell on Jesus instead of on you and me. And at the resurrection of Jesus, God began that great process of pouring out blessing and grace and life on his people. And he will come again and he will finish the process that started in the cross and resurrection. And we have been living in the last days since Jesus died and rose again. When will the last of the last days occur? I don't know. Don't ask me. Our calling is to be ready for them whenever they come. Are we in the end times? Yes. We have been in the end times since Jesus was crucified and resurrected. When does the end of the end times come? I don't know. But are we ready? Jesus isn't distant. He isn't far off. He is the coming one. He is coming. He has come. And he will return. And until then, we look to him. Why? Because he's a Savior who suffers. He suffers for us, the text says. He freed us from our sins by his blood. And he suffers with us. Can you take a minute to think about what it means 
if you're living in the first century and, and you're facing all this pressure to reject Jesus or compromise your trust in him, what it means to have a church leader write these words down so that they're read out loud in a worship service and you hear that Jesus was the faithful witness. That he was the one who got pressured to deny who God is. And he remained faithful through that pressure. That Jesus was tempted, but he didn't abandon his love for God. That he was the faithful one. That Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, but to be the first one born from the dead, first you got to get dead. That Jesus himself knows what it is to be executed because of his commitment to the Father's will and glory and purpose. So not only has Jesus suffered for us to cleanse our sins, but he suffered with us as one of us, as one who knows what it is like to be afraid in this world because powerful people are threatening you. Powerful people hold over you life and death. So, that gives us some picture of what it looks like to be an overcomer. It looks like Jesus. According to verse 5, it looks like love to him who loves us. And it looks like forgiveness. He freed us from our sins. And it looks like self-sacrifice by his blood. If we walk away from the book of Revelation saying, mm, God's kingdom is all about conquest. God's kingdom is all about vengeance on our enemies. We missed it. How does God's kingdom come about? Easy answer, through God's king. Who is God's king? Easy answer. Christian preacher asks you in a worship service, who is God's king? There ain't but one answer. It's Jesus. How did Jesus, God's king, bring about God's kingdom? He loved us. He forgave us. He sacrificed himself for us. That's the vision we need. Can we clarify one more detail because it's so important? Verse 7 says, Jimmy is wrong. Verse 7 says, Jimmy's just kind of trying to compromise with the spirit of the age. You know, we read these magazine articles that are all about empathy and compassion and care for the well-being of others. And so now we're trying to make the book of Revelation about grace and mercy when it's really all about vengeance and justice and judgment. And the way I can prove it is, verse 7 says, Jesus is coming again and everybody's going to see him and won't they regret it? I mean, isn't that what the text says? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. His enemies, those who put him to death, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And I can't wait to see them suffer the way they make us suffer. That's a great recipe for culture warfare. It is not, it is not faithful biblical interpretation. Number one rule, interpreting Revelation, get your vision of God. Number two rule, symbols. 
later weeks. Number three, what was number three? You remember it? What matters? Old Testament. We got to know the Old Testament. This is a quotation from the prophet Zechariah. And when you read the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, you read God saying, after my people have departed from me and, and committed idolatry, and I have poured out judgment through the exile, I will then pour out a spirit of grace, and I will pour out pleas for mercy. They won't be the ones pleading for mercy. I will be pleading for mercy for them. I will pour out a spirit of grace so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. This mourning is not the wailing and the weeping of people who still hate Jesus and see him coming back and they're like, oh no, if only we had known. But now we're getting what we deserve. And all the Christians are sitting up in the bleachers of the universe laughing at us and taunting us as we suffer. That's not what this verse says at all. This verse is a verse about the mourning that comes with repentance. Our God we are the ones who pierced you. And yet you would pour out grace on us and forgive us. We are mourning. These are the tears of repentance and renewal and joy that say, how could this be? How could it be that God knows the truth, that all the tribes of the earth are guilty of loving idols more than him and that all the tribes of the earth are invited to find grace in Christ every eye will see him and even those who pierced him will not hear Jesus say once you were my enemy and I'm going to now treat you as such they will hear Jesus say I love you and I freed you from your sins by my blood. You were my enemy, but now, verse 6 says, I want to make you a king. I want you to be a queen. Will you rule with me? Will you reign with me? Will you be a priest for my father? so that this good news of grace and forgiveness can start to transform this whole planet. I made it to sustain life and peace and flourishing forever. Will you be part of that with me? If we're dead set on believing that this book is a script for being a culture warrior, And finally, getting our due against those pagans out there who hate us and write those bad articles in Salon magazine, then you will misread this book. But if you know Jesus and you know that he loved his Father's word and you know that the Old Testament is the right background for reading the book of Revelation, and you hear the Father's promise of grace back in Zechariah echoing now on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ. You hear the same vision that an Ethiopian man named Dereje 
recently gave to a group of students at the school that he graduated from. He's a Christian. He's experienced much persecution because of his faith in the part of Ethiopia that he lives in. And when he talked to them, he didn't talk about how strong they were, about how they were the future of the world, or how much their neighbors needed them and all their gifts, or how proud it would make their teachers if they made their big mark on the world. He gave them a vision. He said, there is only one mighty one, Jesus. He is the one who sent us. And the one who is with you, he is greater than fear. Because he knew the secret. If you're living in this moment of crisis, the answer is not to get ready for battle. The answer is is to get a vision of the one who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and who has made us a kingdom and priests to his Father. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it feels really good to do what you have called us to do. And so today, one of my callings is to help clarify confusion. It feels good to do that. I think one of my callings is to help people overcome mistaken approaches to the scriptures. It feels good to do that. But our calling together as a church is to maintain steadfastly a clear vision of who you are so that we will know who we are called to be and who, are, who we are strengthened to be by your grace. And if we can keep that vision and hold on to that calling and get that kind of strength from you, it will feel really good. Be with us, we pray. Amen.